Book One, Chapter Three of the Black Star Passes by John Campbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Early the next morning, Fuller moved his equipment over to the laboratory and set up his table for work. There, Arcot and Morey joined him, and the designing of the new machine was started. First, let's get some idea of the most advisable shape. Fuller began methodically. We'll want it streamlined, of course, roughly speaking, a cylinder modified to fit the special uses to which it will be put. But you probably have a general plan in mind, Arcot. Suppose you sketch it for us. The big physicist frowned thoughtfully. Well, we don't know much about this yet, so we'll have to work it out. You'll have plenty of fun figuring out the strains in this machine. So let's be safe and use a factor of safety of five. Let's see what we'll need. In the first place, our machine must be proof against the pirate's gas, for we won't be riding a beam with instruments to guide us safely if we pass out. I've thought that over, and I think that the best system is just what we used in the sample bottles, a vacuum. His gas is stopped by nothing, so to speak, but there is no substance that will stop it. It will no doubt penetrate the outer shell, but upon reaching the vacuum, it will tend to stay there, between the inner and outer walls. Here it will collect, since it will be fighting air pressure in going either in or out. The pressure inside will force it back, and the pressure outside will force it in. If we did not pump it out, it would soon build up pressure enough to penetrate the interior wall. Now since the stuff can leak through any material, what kind of pump shall we use? It won't be pushed by a piston, for it will leak through either the cylinder walls or the piston. A centrifugal pump would be equally ineffective. A mercury vapor pump will take it out, of course, and keep a high vacuum, but we'd never make any progress. Our new machine gives us the answer. With it, we can just have a number of openings in the wall of the outer shell, and set in them one of these molecular motion directors, and direct the molecules into the outside air. They can't come in through it, and they will go out. But, Morey objected, the vacuum that keeps out the gas will also keep out heat, as well. Since our generator is to run on heat energy, it will be rather chilly inside if we don't remedy that. Of course, our power units could be placed outside, where the blast of air will warm them, but we really won't have a very good streamline effect if we hang a big electric generator outside. I've thought of that, too, Arcot answered. The solution is obvious. If we can't bring the generator to the air, we must bring the air to it. He began sketching rapidly on the pad before him. We'll have all the power equipment in this room here in the back, and the control room up in front here. The relays for controlling will be back here, so we can control electrically the operation of the power equipment from our warm, gas-tight room. If it gets too warm in there, we can cool it by using a little of the heat to help accelerate the ship. If it's too cold, we can turn on an electric heater run by the generator. The air for the generator can come in through a small sort of scoop on top, and leave through a small opening in the rear. The vacuum at the tail will assure us a very rapid circulation, even if the centrifugal pump action of the enclosed generator isn't enough. His thoughts began moving more rapidly than his words. We'll want the generator greatly overpowered to run tests over a great range. Won't need more than 100 kilowatts altogether, but should install about a thousand AC, of course. 
Batteries in the keel for starting the generator, self-supporting when it's rolling. But let's set down some actual figures on this. For the rest of the day, the three men were working on the general plan of the new ship, calculating the strengths needed, supplementing mathematics with actual experiments with the machines on hand. The calculating machines were busy continuously, for there were few rules that experience could give them. They were developing something entirely new, and though they were a designing staff of three of the foremost mathematicians in the world, it was a problem that tested their ingenuity to the utmost. By the evening of the first day, however, they had been able to give the finished designs for the power units to the mechanics who were to make them. The order for the storage battery and the standard electrical equipment had been placed at once. By the time they had completed the drawings for the mail casting, the materials were already being assembled in a little private camp that Morey owned up in the hills of Vermont. The giant freight helicopters could land readily in the wide field that had been cleared on the small plateau, in the center of which nestled a little blue lake and a winding trout brook. The mechanics and electrical engineers had been sent up there already, officially on vacation. The entire program could be carried out without attracting the least attention, for such orders from the great transcontinental lines were so frequent that no importance was attached to them. Four days after the final plans had been completed, the last of the supplies were being assembled in the portable shed that was to house the completed machine. The shining tungsto-steel alloy frame members were rapidly being welded in place by cathode-ray welding torches in the hands of skilled artisans. Already at the other end of the shop, the generator had been arranged for use with the molecular motion power units. The many power units to drive and support the ship were finished and awaiting installation as the crew quit work on the fourth evening. They would be installed on the frame in the morning, and the generator would be hoisted into place with the small portable crane. The storage batteries were connected, and in place in the hall. The great fused quartz windows rested in their cases along one wall, awaiting the complete application of the steel alloy plates. They were to be over an inch thick, an unnecessary thickness, perhaps, but they had no need to economize weight, as witnessed by their choice of steel instead of light metal alloys throughout the construction. The three men arrived late that afternoon in the small helicopter, and had gone directly to the shops to see what progress had been made. They had been forced to remain in New York to superintend the shipment of the necessary supplies to the campsite, and since no trouble was anticipated in the making of the steel framework, they had not felt it necessary to come. But now they would be needed to superintend the more delicate work. "'She's shaping up nicely, isn't she?' Arcot gazed at the rapidly rounding frame with a critical eye. Unhindered as they were by the traditional shapes, by wings or other protuberances, they had been able to design a machine of striking beauty. The ship was to retain its natural metallic sheen, the only protection being a coat of passivity paint, a liquid chemical that could be brushed or sprayed on iron, chromium, nickel, or cobalt alloys, rendering them passive to practically all chemical agents. The new paint left the iron or steel as brilliantly glossy as ever, but overcast with a beautiful iridescence, and immune to the most powerful reagents. The three men walked around the rapidly growing hall, and looked with excited interest at the heavy welded joints and the great beams. 
The ship seemed capable of withstanding a fall of several hundred feet with little damage. The location of the power units was plainly visible and easily recognized, for at each point there came together four or five great beams, welded into one great mass of tough metal, and in it there were heavy tungsten bolts that would hold the power units in place. They inspected each joint minutely for signs of flaws, using a small portable X-ray fluoroscope to see the interior of the metal. Each joint seemed perfect. They retired satisfied that everything was ready for work of the next day. The morning began early with a long swim in the lake and a hearty breakfast of country-cured ham and eggs. Then the work on the great framework was continued, and that day saw the power units bolted in place, removable if change was thought advisable. Each power unit was equipped with long, streamlined copper fins lying close to the rounded hull, that they might absorb heat more rapidly. Day by day the structure drew near completion, and with the large crew of highly skilled workers, the craft was practically complete within a week. Only the instruments remained to be installed. Then at last, even these had been put in place, and with the aid of Fuller, Morey Jr., and his own father, Arcot had connected their many complicated circuits. Son, remarked Arcot Sr., looking critically at the great switchboard, with its maze of connections, its many rheostats and controls, and its heavy bus bar connectors behind it, no one man can keep an eye on all those instruments. I certainly hope you have a good-sized crew to operate your controls. We've spent two days getting all those circuits together, and I'll admit that some of them still have me beat. I don't see how you intend to watch all those instruments, and at the same time have any idea what's going on outside. Oh, laughed Arcot, Jr. These aren't intended for constant watching. They're merely helps in a lot of tests I want to make. I want to use this as a flying laboratory so I can determine the necessary powers and the lowest factor of safety to use in building other machines. The machine is very nearly completed now. All we need is the seats. They are to be special air-inflated, gyroscopically controlled seats, to make it impossible for a sudden twist of the ship to put the strain in the wrong direction. Of course, the main gyroscopes will balance the ship laterally, horizontally, and vertically, but each chair will have a separate gyroscope mounting for safety. When do you expect to start after the pirate? Fuller asked. I plan to practice the manipulation of the machine for at least four days, Arcot replied. Before I try to chase the pirate, I'd ordinarily recommend the greatest haste, but the man has stolen close to ten million already, and he's still at it. That would not be done by anyone in his right mind. I suppose you've heard the War Department considers his new gas so important they've obtained a pardon for him on condition they be permitted to have the secret of it. They demand the return of the money, and I have no doubt he has it. I am firmly convinced he is a kleptomaniac. I doubt greatly if he will stop taking money before he is caught. Therefore, it will be safe to wait until we can be sure of our ability to operate the machine smoothly. Any other course would be suicidal. Also, I am having some of those tool makers make up a special type of molecular motion machine for use as a machine gun. The bullets are steel, about three inches long, and as thick as my thumb. They will be perfectly streamlined except for a little stabilizer at the tail to guide them. They won't spin as a rifle bullet does, so there will be no gyroscopic effect to hold the nose on, 
but the streamlining and the stabilizer will keep them on their course. I expect them to be able to zip right through many inches of armor plate, since they will have a velocity of over four miles a second. They'll be fed in at a rate of about 200 a minute, faster if I wish, and started by a small spring. They will instantly come into the field of a powerful molecular motion director, and will be shot out with terrific speed. It will be the first rifle ever made that could shoot bullets absolutely parallel to the ground. But that is all we can do today. The guns will be mounted outside and controlled electrically, and the charts will be installed tomorrow. By the day after tomorrow, at 8 a.m., I plan to take off. The work the next day was rushed to completion far earlier than Arcot had dared to hope. All the men had been kept isolated at the farm lest they accidentally spread the news of the new machine. It was with excited interest that they helped the machine to completion. The guns had not been mounted yet, but that could wait. Mid-afternoon found the machine resting in the great construction shed, completely equipped and ready to fly. Dick, said Morey as he strode up to him after testing the last of the gyroscopic seats. She's ready. I certainly want to get her going. It's only 3.30, and we can go around to the sunlight part of the world when it gets dark at the speeds we can travel. Let's test her now. I'm just as anxious to start as you are, Bob. I've sent for a U.S. Air Inspector. As soon as he comes, we can start. I'll have to put an X-license indication on her now. He'll go with us to test it, I hope. There'll be room for three people on board. I think you and Dad and I will be the logical passengers. He pointed excitedly. Look, there's a government helicopter coming. Tell the men to get the blocks from under her and tow her out. Two power trucks should do it. Get her at least ten feet beyond the end of the hangar. We'll start straight up and climb to at least a five-mile height where we can make mistakes safely. While you're intending to do that, I'll see if I can induce the air inspector to take a trip with us. Half an hour later, the machine had been rolled entirely out of the shed on the new concrete runway. The great craft was a thing of beauty, shimmering in the bright sunlight. The four men who were to ride in it, on its maiden voyage, stood off to one side gazing at the great gleaming metal hull. The long, sweeping lines of the sides told a story of perfect streamlining, and implied high speed, even at rest. The bright, slightly iridescent steel hull shone in silvery contrast to the gleaming copper of the power unit's heat absorption fins the great clear windows in the nose, and the low streamlined air intake for the generator seemed only to accentuate the graceful lines of the machine. "'Lord, she's a beauty, isn't she, Dick?' exclaimed Morey, a broad smile of pleasure on his face. "'Well, she did shape up nicely on paper, too, didn't she?' "'Oh, Fuller, congratulations on your masterpiece. It's even better looking than we thought. Now the copper has added color to it. Doesn't she look fast?' I wish we didn't need physicists so badly on this trip, so you could go on the first ride with us. Oh, that's all right, Dick. I know the number of instruments in there, and I realize they'll mean a lot of work this trip. I wish you all the luck. The honor of having designed the first ship like that, the first heavier-than-air ship that ever flew without wings, jets, or props, that is something to remember. And I think it's one of the most beautiful that ever flew, too. Well, Dick, his father said quietly, let's get her underway. It should fly, but we don't really know that it will. The four men entered the ship and strapped themselves in the gyroscopic seats. 
One by one they reported ready. Captain Mason, Arcot explained to the air inspector, these seats may seem a bit more active than one generally expects a seat to be, but in this experimental machine, I've provided all the safety devices I could think of. The ship itself won't fall, of that I am sure, but the power is so great it might well prove fatal to us if we're not in a position to resist the forces. You know all too well the effect of sharp turns at high speed and the results of centrifugal force. This machine can develop such tremendous power that I have to make provision for it. You notice my controls and the instruments are mounted on the arm of the chair, really. That permits me to maintain complete control of the ship at all times, and still permits my chair to remain perpendicular to the forces. The gyroscopes in the base here cause the entire chair to remain stable if the ship rolls, but the chair can continue to revolve about this bearing here so that we will not be forced out of our seats. I'm confident that you will find the machine safe enough for a license. Shall we start? All right, Dr. Arcot, replied the air inspector. If you and your father are willing to try it, I am. Ready, engineer? asked Arcot. Ready, pilot, replied Morey. All right, just keep your eye on the meters, Dad, as I turn on the system. If the instruments back there don't take care of everything, and you see one flash over the red mark, yank open the main circuit. I'll call out what to watch as I turn them on. Ready, son. Main gyroscopes. There was a low snap, a clicking of relays in the rear compartment, and then a low hum that quickly ran up the scale. Main generators. Again the clicking switch, and the relays thudding into action. Again the rising hum. Seat gyroscopes. The low click was succeeded by a quick shrilling of sound that rose in moments above the range of hearing as the separate gyroscopes took up their work. Main power tube bank. The low hum of the generator changed to a momentary roar as the relays threw on full load. In a moment, the automatic controls had brought it up to speed. Everything's working perfectly so far. Are we ready to start now, son? Main vertical power units. The great ship trembled throughout, its length as the lift off of the power unit started. A special instrument had been set up on the floor beside Arcot, that he might be able to judge the lift as power units. It registered the apparent weight of the ship. It read 200 tons. Now all eyes were fixed on it as the pointer dropped quickly to 150, 100, 75, 50, 40, 20, 10. There was such a click and the instrument flopped back to 300. It was registering in pounds now. The needle moved to zero and the mighty structure floated into the air, slowly moving down the field as a breeze carried it along the ground. The men outside saw it rise swiftly into the sky, straight toward the blue vault of heaven. In two or three minutes it was disappearing. The glistening ship shrank to a tiny point of light. Then it was gone. It must have been rising at fully three hundred miles an hour. To the men in the car there had been a tremendous increase in weight that had forced them into the air cushions like leaden masses. Then the ground fell away with a speed that made them look in amazement. The house the construction shed, the lake, all seemed contracting beneath them. So quickly were they rising that they had not time to adjust their mental attitude. To them, all the world seemed shrinking about them. Now they were at a tremendous height. Over twenty miles they had risen into the atmosphere. The air about them was so thin that the sky seemed black. The stars blazed out in cold, unwinking glory.
while the great fires of the sun seemed reaching out to space like mighty arms seeking to draw back to the parent body the masses of the wheeling planets. About it, in far-flung streamers of cold fire, shone the mighty zodiacal light, an aurora on a titanic scale. For a moment they hung there, while they made readings of the meters. Arcot was the first to speak, and there was awe in his voice. I never began to let out the power of this thing. What a ship! When these are made commercially, we'll have to use about one-horsepower generators in them, or people will kill themselves trying to see how fast they can go. Methodically, the machine was tried out at this height, testing various settings of the instruments. It was definitely proven that the values that Arcot and Mori had designed from purely theoretical calculations were correct to within one-tenth of one percent. The power absorbed by the machine they knew and had calculated, but the terrific power of the driving unit was far beyond their expectations. Well, now we're off for some horizontal maneuvers, Arcot announced. I'm sure we agree the machine can climb and hold itself in the air. The air pressure control seemed to be working perfectly. Now let's test her speed. Suddenly the seat swung beneath them, then as the ship shot forward with ever greater speed ever greater acceleration, it seemed that it turned and headed upward, although they knew that the main stabilizing gyroscopes were holding it level. In a moment the ship was headed out over the Atlantic at a speed no rifle bullet had ever known. The radio speedometer needle pushed farther and farther over as the speed increased to unheard of values. Before they left the North American shoreline they were traveling faster than a mile a second. They were in the middle of the Atlantic before Arcot gradually shut off the acceleration, letting the seats drop back into position. A hubbub of excited comments arose from the four men. Momentarily, with the full realization of the historical importance of this flight, no one paid any attention to anyone else. Finally, a question of the air inspector reached Arcot's ears. What speed did we attain, Dr. Arcot? Look, there's the coast of Europe. How fast are we going now? We were traveling at the rate of three miles a second at the peak, Arcot answered. Now it has fallen to two and a half. Again Arcot turned his attention to his controls. I'm going to try to see what the ultimate ceiling of this machine is. It must have a ceiling since it depends on the operation of the generator to operate the power units. This in turn depends on the heat of the air, helped somewhat by the sun's rays. Up we go! The ship was put into a vertical climb, and steadily the great machine rose. Soon, however, the generator began to slow down. The readings of the instruments were dropping rapidly. The temperature of the exceeding tenuous air outside was so close to absolute zero that it provided very little energy. "'Get up some forward speed,' Morey suggested, "'so that you'll have the aid of the air scoop to force the air in faster.' "'Right, Morey. Arcot slowly applied the power to the forward propulsion units. As they took hold, the ship began to move forward. The increase in power was apparent at once. The machine started rising again, but at last, at a height of fifty-one miles, her ceiling had been reached. The cold of the cabin became unbearable, for every kilowatt of power that the generator could get from the air outside was needed to run the power units. The air, too, became foul and heavy for the pumps could not replace it with a fresh supply from the near vacuum outside. Oxygen tanks had not been carried on this trip. 
As the power of the generator was being used to warm the cabin once more, they began to fall. Though the machine was held stable by the gyroscopes, she was dropping freely, but they had fifty miles to fall, and as the resistance of the denser air mounted, they could begin to feel the sense of weight return. You've passed, but for the maneuvers, Dr. Arcot. Their inspector was decidedly impressed. The required altitude was passed so long ago. Why, are we still some miles above it, I guess? How fast are we falling? I can't tell unless I point the nose of the ship down, for the apparatus works only in the direction in which the ship is pointed. Hold on, everyone, I'm going to start using some power to stop us. It was night when they returned to the little field in Vermont. They had established a new record in every form of aeronautical achievement except endurance. The altitude record, the speed record, the speed of the climb, the acceleration record. All that Arcot could think of had been passed. Now the ship was coming to the dock for the night. In the morning it would be out again, but now Arcot was sufficiently expert with the controls to maneuver the ship safely on the ground. They finally solved the wind difficulty by decreasing the weight of the ship to about fifty pounds, thus enabling three men to carry it into the hangar. The next two days were devoted to careful tests of the power factors of the machine. The best operating frequency, the most efficient altitude of operation, and as many other tests as they had time for. Each of the three younger men took turns operating, but so great were the strains of the sudden acceleration that Arcot Sr. decided it would be wisest for him to stay on the ground and watch. Arcot spent four days practicing the manipulation of the machine, for though it handled far more readily than any other craft he had ever controlled, there was always the danger of turning on too much power under the stress of sudden excitement. The night before, Arcot had sailed the ship down and alighted on the roof of Morey Sr.'s apartment leaving enough power on to reduce the weight to but ten tons, lest it fall through the roof, while he went down to see the president of the lines about some bait for the pirate. "'Send some cash along,' said Arcot, when he saw Morey Sr. "'Say a quarter of a million. Make it more or less public knowledge, and talk it up so that the pirate may think a real haul is on board. I'm going to accompany the plane at a height of about a quarter mile above.' I will try to locate him from there by means of radar, and if I have my apparatus on, I naturally can't locate him. I hope he won't be scared away, but I rather believe he won't. At any rate, you won't lose on the try. End of chapter 3 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceover-solutions.com